All right, our sermon uh, verses today are going to be Exodus 15. It's verses 22 through 27, and this is entitled, The Sweetened Waters. All right, Exodus 15, starting in the 22nd verse. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. For every sermon, one must think up an introduction, a little piece of information to make a smooth transition from the previous events of the day into the sermon itself. Today's was easy. On 15 July, just 12 days before I typed this sermon, Jim sent me an email and asked about an account from the Old Testament. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 6, and it was a part of Jim and Linda's Bible reading for the day. They wanted to know what it was there for. As he said, and these are his words, nothing is in the Bible that doesn't belong there. But these few verses sure raise an eyebrow. Can you give me a little insight on what this is telling us, aside from the obvious that Elisha was gifted through God? I had never really considered those verses in detail, but I looked them over a bit and nothing came to mind. And so for night after night, I read them and thought about them as I slept. Then when I got to this passage in Exodus, I decided to do a detailed study of the account and add the story in with the sermon because the two accounts are so similar. We'll get to it at the end of the Exodus verses today. For now, though, we'll look at how the bitter waters of Mara became sweet. Our text verse today comes from Revelation 21. It's the sixth verse. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. As always, there are pictures of Christ in his work all the way through the Bible. God uses the natural to reveal the spiritual. Water is given as a picture of life and of even of Christ himself, the true life of us all. Someday we will have a perpetual fountain of the water of life bubbling over in us for all eternity. It is ours now if we will but receive it. And it will be realized in us some wonderful day when Christ comes for us. What a great hope we have. What a sure and glorious promise to place our faith in. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's take a look at that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may God's glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the bitter waters made sweet. It's verses 22 through 25 and one half. Verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. It seems as if a pun is being made in these first words of the day. Moses' name means he who draws out. And so we are reminded after the great song of victory that he who draws out has brought Israel from the Red Sea. 
Many scholars believe that this location is known even today as Ayun Musa, or the Springs of Moses. Apparently, there are a number of wells and a considerable amount of vegetation there. It's about seven miles south of Suez. If this is that location, it is where the Song of Moses was written and sung. From there, their steps were directed into the wilderness of Shur. This name, Shur, is actually shrouded in mystery because of the various possible root words that lead to it, and also that it isn't agreed which root is correct. But I'm sure that there's a reason for selecting the name Shur, because later in Numbers 33, verse 8, the same area and journey is said to be in the wilderness of Itam, a completely different name. The three roots from which the name is derived all have the common element of a sudden appearance, and thus the thought, behold, seems to apply. And in the context of the passage, that idea fits beautifully. In these verses, both the people of Israel as well as us will behold the healing of the bitter waters. Shur is the same name of the place where Hagar, the concubine of Abraham and the mother of Ishmael, was fleeing to in Genesis chapter 16. There the Lord appeared to her at a well which was named Be'er Lahai Roi, or the well of the one who lives and sees me. At that time, the Lord announced that she would have her son and that he was to be named Ishmael. That well was not to be found by the Israelites, though, as they continued their trek after three long days. Verse 22 continues, And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Regardless of whether the well which Hagar came to was near to them or still a long distance off, unlike her, they found no water. In the desert, water is life. The people would have carried some, but there would not be a great supply. And considering the countless animals that went with them, this could easily become a great tragedy. The animals would suffer the most and the most quickly. But we have to keep remembering that they are being led. There is nothing to suggest that the pillar of cloud and fire did not remain with them the entire time, guiding them. This then is a trial which has a purpose, and whether they could see it or not, it was intended to instruct them. Verse 23, Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. If Ayun Musa is the true spot which they departed from, the next logical spot which corresponds to this description would be a place known now as Huara. It's approximately 35 miles from Ayun Musa, and the entire distance between the two is sand and rough gravel. It would have been a hard, hot walk, even in the springtime. Regardless as to whether this is the true place that they came to, at the time they called it Mara. The name Mara is spelled with a hey or an H at the end of it. This is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, five being the number of grace. It is the same letter that was added to Abraham and Sarah's name as a sign of covenant grace. However, if you remember in the book of Ruth, when Naomi asked to be called Mara, it is spelled without this H. In calling herself Mara without an H, she was proclaiming her bitterness, and it was as if she felt she was outside of the Lord's covenant provision, wallowing in her own bitterness. This letter, hey, or H, has the meaning of look, reveal, or breath. And thus, understanding this, the story takes on a greater meaning. A gift of grace will be revealed which will take the people's breath away. Verse 23 continues, Therefore the name of it was called Mara. As I said, the place is named because of the waters. 
This is probably the case with almost every single location which the people will travel to during the next 40 years. Unless they were already named places when they arrived, the places where they stop will be named based on what occurs at the place when they stop. This will be quite common as we travel with them through the wilderness. God will reveal something, or the people will act in a certain way, or some other thing will occur which will bring forth a name for the location. Verse 24, And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? The pulpit commentary notes here, The men who serve a nation best are during their lifetime least appreciated. After three days of walking and coming to a well with bitter waters, the people did what the bitterness seemed to cry out for. They complained against Moses. Interestingly, the word for complain here is loon. It literally means to lodge, as in lodging for the night. And so it seems strange as a word to be translated as complain or grumble. And yet it is translated this way dozens and dozens of times during the wilderness wanderings. It appears that as a lodging is a temporary thing, the grumbling is as well. Even though there is hardship in the night, with the Lord, there is joy in the morning. The Ha Theological Word Book of the Old Testament describes this word loon in this way. They say, the theological usage emphasizes the brevity of God's anger as opposed to the life-giving power of his abundant favor. That description actually fits quite perfectly with what happens next. Though the people complained against Moses, he knows where to go for relief. Verse 25, so he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. Moses, or he who draws out, cries to the Lord. In doing so, he draws out from the Lord an answer to their dilemma. The Lord shows him a tree. The word translated as tree is exactly that, ets, or a tree. The word simply means wood. However, there is a picture being given to us which is more than just a piece of wood. Instead, we are seeing the work of Christ revealed once again, as he has been so many thousands of times already since Holy Bible, page 1. Verse 25 continues, When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. This, in essence, is correcting a contrary with a contrary. There is something bad which needs to be fixed, and so something else which is bad will fix it. People can't eat a tree, though they may eat what comes from a tree. But it's contrary to think that a tree would heal water in this way, especially on the scale which could satisfy two million people plus millions of animals. Therefore, the tree is actually a sign to the people and not the cure itself. And because it is a sign, it then must also be a pictorial lesson for us. Having been shown the tree, and without any further note of what transpired between the Lord and Moses, we next read that he simply threw it into the waters, and with that they were made sweet. The verb for made sweet is mathok. It is a word that is used for the first of just five times in the Bible. Each time it appears, it is used to contrast something else. Here, the bitter waters are contrasted with them becoming sweet. In Job chapter 20, the sweetness of evil is contrasted with sourness in the stomach and even venom. Here's what it says in Job 20. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach turns sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. Again, in Job 21, the bitterness of life is contrasted with the sweetness of the grave. 
In the 55th Psalm, the sweet counsel of a friend is contrasted with his later betrayal of him. And in the Proverbs, the temporary sweetness of stolen water is contrasted with the consequences of the action. Here's what it says. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. This is the idea that we're given here. A contrast is made between two things, bitter and sweet. But what is to be remembered is that the original change actually came because of a tree. It is the lesson of the Garden of Eden. Where there was ease, comfort, and fellowship, they were lost by a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In their interaction with this tree came trial, difficulty, and a broken relationship. If it was a tree which caused the rift, then we are being given a picture of a tree which will also heal that rift. In this story, water is emblematic of life because without fresh water, people will die. Therefore, the tree is also emblematic of the granting of that life, its restoration. This then is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ, that tree which made our waters sweet once again, as Christ himself proclaims in John chapter 4, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. However, before the well could bring forth the fresh water, there was bitterness. There was bitterness in man who lacked everlasting life, and there was bitterness in Jesus' cross, which could only bring us everlasting life through his death. The waters were bitter, but the waters were healed. Now through Christ, a fountain of life has bubbled forth, just as happened at Mara when the waters were sweetened. The bitter waters of life have stolen all joy. There is no soundness in my bones. I am weak and drained. What can heal the waters? What can I employ that will bring life to this body so that health is attained? Is there a way to purify this fount? What can heal these waters? What can I employ? And because they flow, it would take an everlasting amount. What kind of thing could bring this eternal joy? I behold there a tree and on it a bitter-filled sight, a man whose life is ebbing away. But I perceive that he will heal the waters of my plight. Through his death, the waters are sweetened in a marvelous way. Our second thought today is, I am the Lord who heals you. It's verses 25 and one half through 27. Verse 25 continuing, there he made a statute and an ordinance for them and there he tested them. It seems that these words should be their own verse, doesn't it? Separated from the previous words of verse 25. So much so is this that I have started an entirely new thought in today's sermon right in the middle of a verse. And yet it is right that the words are contained in one verse. God has shown the people grace in the wilderness. He gave them sweet water in repayment for their complaints. He healed them despite their lack of faith. And now a threat is implied. In the same verse where grace is bestowed, a statute and an ordinance are given. The giving of this statute and ordinance would make no sense at all if he had not healed the waters. But because he had, it became an object lesson for them. He was able to heal the water and now he was asking for implicit trust in the mandates that we, he would proceed to give them. The word statute is hook. It implies something prescribed or owed. 
The word ordinance or mishpat implies a judgment based on justice. Grace is not based on these things. A law does not confer grace. It confers a requirement which is to be obeyed. When it isn't, then one may receive punishment or they may receive mercy. But either way, grace is excluded. They received grace in the healing of the waters. They now receive a law to guide them after their healing. In the giving of that law, it then says that he tested them. It is the word Nassah. It was first used in Genesis 22, verse 1, when the Lord tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice Isaac. Now it is used for the second time in the Bible to test the descendants of Abraham. In their testing comes a promise, but also a veiled threat. Verse 26, and said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians. The word im or if is a conditional word. It implies that if something is in compliance, then there will be one result. If it is not, then there will be another. The Lord promises them now, after this first testing, which ended in grace, that further testings will carry rewards or losses. That's sounding a lot like our own walk in Christ now, isn't it? We are saved by grace with no works on our part. We have walked in a wilderness. We have complained of our situation, and by his unmerited favor, he has given us the life-giving waters. But after our salvation and after our being granted eternal life, we are given commandments and statutes. If we comply, things will normally go well for us. If we don't, we only have ourselves to blame. The commands and exhortations from the hand of Paul are many, but they are given for our well-being. The Lord is showing us from this ancient story that his ways are always, always the better option. And so he first tells Israel that they should diligently heed his voice with the words, Shamoa Tishma, listening, you shall listen. Pay heed, take note, hear the word. And what is it that they should be so attentive to? Three things. The first, they hayashar be'anav ta'aseh. They should do what is right in his sight. The word is yashar and it means upright. It is the first time it is used in the whole Bible, and it is the Lord imploring them to do what is morally honorable and proper in his eyes, not in theirs. He sets the standard. They are to accept it. Unfortunately, the people failed often. Generation after generation found it more suitable to follow their own desires than the will of the Lord. It is the theme of the book of Judges. The very last words of that book repeat the same sentiment found throughout the book. Here's what it says in Judges 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Secondly, and give ear to his commandments. The mitzvot are the comprehensive list of laws which form the law of Moses. They are told to listen to these, not just to hear. We hear things all the time, but we often don't listen. Every week you come and hear a sermon from Charlie, but you don't always listen. Sometimes you drowse and sometimes you nod off. The Lord will give commandments and they are to be listened to, unlike Charlie's sermons. Many generations later, the Lord spoke to Ezekiel and he said that the people had failed to do exactly this. Here's what he says in Ezekiel 33. 
So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth, they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. The Lord is warning the people of what lies ahead. A law will be given, and there will be consequences for failing to heed that law. And thirdly, Veshamarta kal hukav, and keep all of his statutes. A commandment is something one is to do in obedience to the one in authority. A statute is similar. It is something owed to the one in authority. It is something apportioned to someone to guide them in their societal conduct. The rest of the Old Testament is replete with examples of the people, both the leaders and the common people, failing to adhere to this admonition. During the giving of the law, the Lord will be very specific concerning the blessings and the curses which will come upon the people for either adhering to these things or for straying from them. These are recorded in the first person from the Lord in Leviticus chapter 26. He says, I will do this and I will do that. They're recorded in the third person by Moses in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will do this and the Lord will do that. It is the Lord who gives the laws. It is the Lord who executes the judgment upon violators. And it is the Lord who heals the people who adhere or who repent. The psalmist understood this from the 30th Psalm. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and I have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. It is the Lord who judges and the Lord who heals. He is the Lord. Verse 26 continues, for I am the Lord who heals you. Ani Yehovah Rofecha. It is a title as much as a proclamation. I am the Lord who heals you. The healing of the waters was for their physical healing. The Lord promises now that in adherence to his word, there is such healing to be found. This word heal or rafa is used 67 times in the Old Testament, and it is often used in exactly the manner that he proclaims here. After much disobedience and a second exile, which lasted for 2,000 years, the Lord promised that he would a second time heal his wayward people. This is recorded in Hosea chapter 6 with these words, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he is torn, but he will heal. That word, Rapha, heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. It is also the same word which is used to describe the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as he went to the cross for our healing. In Isaiah 53, it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes, we are healed. Rapha. The Lord is telling this group of people in advance that what he has done for them at Mara is a part of his nature. He is gracious, but he is also telling them that there are other aspects of who he is. He is just, he is righteous. He is holy. And in his proclamations, they are to see that there are consequences for violating these awesome attributes that he is revealing to them. He is their healer if they will but allow themselves to be healed. 
For us, the healing of the waters isn't for our physical healing. Rather, it is for our spiritual healing. The fount was poisoned by the devil, but Christ purifies it once again, if we will but trust. It is, in fact, by grace that we are saved through faith. Verse 27, our final verse of this chapter. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. Anyone? Anyone? This chapter ends with the most unusual verse, doesn't it? It gives us enough to know that things went well after the next trek, but only enough to tantalize the thoughts, wondering why more isn't given. This place here is called Elim. It is believed to be identified today as the Wadi Gurundel. It is an oasis with many types of trees, including palm trees, and which has a stream flowing through it. Albert Barnes notes that it is about a mile in breadth, but in length it stretches out a long way to the northeast. Thus, it would be suitable for, you know, encamping two million people. The name Elim comes from a root which indicates to protrude or to stick out, such as a porch on a house or a ram in a flock or a large tree. There at Elim, the Bible records 12 wells. However, the word in Hebrew says Enot Mayim, eyes of water. And so these are springs. They're not, they're, they're natural form springs. They're not dug wells. There are also 70 palm trees. The word is Temarim, which is the plural of the word Tamar, the same name as the daughter of Judah who bore his child. The name pictures an upright or a righteous person. At this location is said that the people camp there by the wells. I dread leaving verses like this unattended concerning a picture that they're making. And there is every reason to believe that the Lord is telling us something with the specificity. 12 springs and 70 palms. What is this referring to? It drove me crazy until I finally figured it out. If Christ is the water of life and there are 12 springs, these then picture those who send out the word of the water of life to the people. In Matthew 10, the apostles are given power to heal, just as the Lord said that he would be Jehovah Rophecha in the previous verse. Here's what it says in Matthew 10, 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And the 70 palm trees then would represent the 70 disciples or righteous ones chosen by Christ in Luke 10 to follow suit. Here's what it says there. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then going down to verse nine and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Again, like the apostles, they were given the power to heal by Jehovah Rophecha, the Lord Jesus. The name Elim is given to show that the work of Christ protrudes out for all to see as the apostles and the disciples spread its message to Israel. Chapter 15 closes with a picture of the Lord and his ministry to the people of Israel, a ministry which was intended for the healing of the people if they would but pay heed to him and to his words. I am the Lord who heals you. I am the one who can take away your pains. In following me, you are following the path which is true, and in doing so are to be found eternal gains. I am the Lord who heals you. In me there is a well bubbling up to everlasting life, 
I will fulfill every promise as I said I would do. I will end the enmity between us. I will end the strife. There is healing in my wings, for I am the Lord who heals you. And I will do marvelous things, for I am ever faithful and true. Our third thought today, bonus insert. It's 2 Kings 6, verses 1 through 7. In the book of 2 Kings, the prophet Elisha performs two miracles, both of which parallel the account that we've just seen. The first is found in 2 Kings 2, verses 19 through 22, where Elisha throws salt into the water to heal it. The second is found in 2 Kings 6, verses 1 through 7, and deals with him throwing wood into water to raise an axe head. Although space won't allow us to cover both, or even one in complete detail, I decided to add in a quick look at the second to round out our time in God's precious word today and to satisfy curious Jim and inquisitive Linda's well-directed curiosity. Here are those verses. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he said, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell in the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. Verse 1, And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. The term sons of the prophets means those who are of the prophets as disciples. They are a collective group of people who study under the hand of Elisha. Collectively, they come to Elisha and they say that the place where they are dwelling can no longer sustain them. Instead, they wish to go to Jordan to build a larger place to study. The name Elisha comes from two separate words, El, meaning God, and Yasha, meaning to be saved. So its name means God is salvation or God the Savior. To him they ask, Nelecha na ad hayarden. Let us go, we pray you, to Jordan. Verse 2, please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, go. The name Jordan is given and therefore it is relevant to the story. It means the descender because it descends from the high mountains of Lebanon all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest spot on planet Earth. The word for beam is used just five times in the Old Testament. It comes from a word which means to occur or happen, especially that which happens beyond one's control. The idea in a beam is probably that by putting beams together, it causes a building to occur. In response to their request, Elisha simply says, Leku, go. Verse 3, then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he said, I will go. Where it says, one said, the term ha-echad, or the one, is used. One is singled out as making the request. He asks Elisha to come along and calls himself and the others, Abadecha, your servants. The request was probably so that the project would be blessed by his presence or for him to oversee the project. 
Alicia seems impressed enough by the man's faith and his ability to be of assistance. And so in response, he says, Ani elek, I will go. There's an immense sparseness of verbiage being employed by Alicia in this account. He is direct, his words are simple, and unlike me in my sermons, he doesn't waste any words. Verse four, so he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. Together, they all went and came to the Jordan where they cut down ha-etzim or the trees. The word for cut here is gazar. It means to completely divide or to separate. It is used when speaking of Christ's death in Isaiah 53. It says he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation for he was cut off, that word gazar, from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Verse five, but as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water and he cried out and said, alas, master, for it was borrowed. The person cutting down the tree seems to be the same person who asked Elisha to come in the first place. The term ha-echad or the one is used again, possibly to imply the same person. The term for cutting down in this verse is not the same as in the previous verse. This word is nafal, nakazar. It means to fall as if a tree falls. While in the process of felling a tree, ha-barzel or the iron comes off the axe handle and falls into the water. Charles Ellicott notes that the wording here is unusual. He says, the subject of the verb is made prominent by being put first in the accusative. It is thus implied that something happened to the iron. His response to this contains pitiful words. Aha, Adoni vehu Shaul. Alas, my Lord, and it was begged. He couldn't afford his own, and so he begged to use one belonging to another. He was morally responsible to pay for it, but he could not. Verse six, so the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. Here, Elisha in Hebrew is called Ish Ha Elohim. Rather than the man of God, it should say the man of the God, thus signifying the one true God. There's a definite article in front of God there. He asks where the iron fell in the water and the man showed him. Verse six continues, so he cut off a stick and threw it in there and he made the iron float. To rectify the situation, Elisha takes the action. He doesn't ask the person to get him a stick. Instead, he gets one himself. The word for cut is another word entirely from the two previously translated as cut. The word is katsav, to cut. The only other time that it's used in the entire Bible is in the Song of Solomon when referring to the shearing of sheep. Once he had the wood, he threw it in the water. It is the same word, shalak, that was used to describe what Moses did at the waters of Marah. In both accounts, they cast the stick into the water. For Moses, the waters were made sweet. For Elisha, the axe head was made to float. The word for float here is tsuf. It's used only two other times in the entire Bible. Once when the waters flowed over the Egyptians in the Red Sea, and once in Lamentations chapter 3, when Jeremiah says, the waters flowed over my head, I said, I am cut off. Interestingly, Jeremiah uses the same word in Lamentations, Gazar, about himself as was used in verse 3 concerning cutting down the trees. Everything in the Bible fits so perfectly if you know what's going on. Verse 7, our final verse of the day, Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. 
So he reached out his hand and took it. In his normal, verbose way, Elisha simply says, Harem lach, take up two. The word rum that he uses carries the idea of exalting something. By lifting, something is raised up or exalted. The once lost axe head has been restored. So what is this story telling us? Would any of you like to come on up and finish the sermon? Anybody? To understand, we need to first go back to Deuteronomy 19 and to read something similar about an axe head. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 19, 4 through 6. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, but he shall flee, he shall flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated the victim in the past. In this account, the person is legally and morally culpable of an offense, even though it was unintentional. The same is true with the man at the Jordan. He is morally and legally responsible to restore what was lost, even if he didn't intentionally lose it. The axe head then is a picture of fallen man. He has inherited sin through Adam. Even if he didn't do anything intentionally wrong, he still bears the guilt simply because he exists. He is submerged in sin and there is seemingly no hope for him. He is covered by the waters and he is cut off. This is explained by Paul in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Being morally culpable, whether one knows that they have done wrong or not, is a tenet which is found both in civil life and in the Bible as well. In civil life, we use the term, ignorance of the law is no... That's right, no excuse. See, even you can finish the sermon. If we break a law, even if we didn't know that that law existed, we are still guilty. If I get onto the road out here and I turn and I start going that way at 50 miles an hour... There may be a sign limit that is posted before where I turned. It says 45 miles an hour. I'm guilty even though the signpost is here and I turned onto that road. I am to be responsible to know the law. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. The same is true with spiritual matters. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. The waters cover fallen man because man is fallen. However, the very waters that cover him are also the medium through which moral and legal responsibility is reversed. Jordan, or the descender, pictures the time of Christ's advent just as it did at the burial of Jacob and at other times when it's mentioned in the Bible. Christ became a man. The same medium through which sin came will be used to deal with sin. Jesus descended from the high mountain, picturing heaven, even to the Dead Sea itself. Elisha, or God of salvation, is a picture of the work of Christ. Christ bore Calvary's cross upon himself, pictured by Elisha cutting the wood himself. 
The wood was cast into the waters just as Christ was cast into the pit of death. But through that act, the axe head was restored. The legal and moral responsibility was paid for by another, and it was removed from the offender. In our baptism is a picture of what we see right here. We are immersed in the waters of death with our legal and our moral bonds weighing us down, but we are raised to newness of life, free from those bonds. As in the account with Moses, the tree cast into the waters symbolizes the cross of Calvary and the expiation, or the taking away of our sins. The waters are the source of life for the believer, Christ. They are the law which overwhelms us and by which we are cut off. And yet Christ is the embodiment of that law. And so it is through him and his fulfillment of that law that our sin is removed and eternal life is granted. However, there is the final verse with those instructive words, harem lach, pick it up for yourself. What is that telling us? Anyone? Absolutely free will. We have to do something. We have to reach out by faith and receive back the restored rights. Each of us should do just as the man did there with Alicia. So he reached out his hand and he took it. If you have never reached out your hand to receive God's pardon, which is found in Jesus Christ, the Lord, do it today. The entire Bible, even these obscure little passages that almost seem quaint, is there to show us the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The axe head was still in the water. It was still in Christ until it was received from him. The hole in Jesus' side was there for all to see. But Thomas doubted, and so Jesus told him to reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. This is what Jesus would ask each of us to do. Reach out for the axe head. Reach out our hand and take what has been offered. Reach out for restoration through Christ. I pray, I pray that you will do so today. And just so you know how to do that, if you've never taken the opportunity, you just simply need to call out to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins. Oh God, I am a sinner. I've done wrong and I know I've done wrong. And I want that eternal life. I want that water of life that is bubbling up for all eternity just for me. I know that you can do it. I know that you can save me. I know that it's by grace. God simply sent you into the world to take my punishment that I deserve. And I accept that. I receive it. I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I will live for you as best as I can all the days of my life. Please, if you've never done that today, I would ask you to do it. Jesus Christ is waiting and he will not force himself on you. Take out your hand and receive it. Our closing verse today comes from Revelation chapter 22. It's something that Paul brought in and spoke to us about before the service started. I love how these little things always happen like this. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Next week is Exodus 16. It's verses 1 through 8. In this bread, there is no leaven. It's entitled Bread from Heaven. That'll be our 45th Exodus sermon. And I'd like to remind you, as I do each and every week, week after week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him 
and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? All right? Our poem today is called Precious Water of Life. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And into the wilderness they went days three and found no water, nothing to drink, nothing tasty and pure. Now when they to Marah came, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore Marah was called its name. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Tell us, we are praying. So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet, sweet as can be. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and not wrong instead, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This I will do. Then they came to Elim, where there were of water twelve wells, and seventy palm trees, beautiful it would seem, so they camped there by the waters, as the account tells. Such a beautiful story of God's tender care for us. He took what was bitter and healed it. And if we will just receive his son, the Lord Jesus, and to him our souls entrust and commit, we will be saved unto the ages of ages for all eternity. It is a gift and an offer from our glorious God. How can such love be found? How can it be that he would heal us from the sins of our earthly trod? We hail you, O our majestic King. We praise you, glorious Lord Jesus. Hear our voices as to you we sing, you who have done such marvelous things for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for these wonderful stories of grace. Grace in the wilderness, water of life bubbling up from a bitter, bitter well. How amazing that is. And the axe head, an iron axe head that would float bringing us up out of that pit of sin and corruption that we've been in. And you've brought us up and you've restored us. And you've simply said, just take it. It is an offer. It is grace. If you will just receive it, don't try to earn it. You'll only offend me. Just take it and receive my grace. And I will give you everlasting life in a place that you cannot even imagine. What kind of a God would do that for us? How wonderful you are. How absolutely glorious you are to do that for us, Lord. I thank you for that. I know each person here thanks you for that. Please be with each person here today. Help them to just rejoice in you, to feel blessed in you at every moment, to proclaim you and not to be shy about proclaiming you, but to tell the world of the grace which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh God, we love you and we praise you through him, our dear Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.